Hello, I'm Paul Harvey Jr., and welcome to the Rest of the Story podcast. We have three episodes for you today, so let's get started. It was the day after the wedding. The happy couple had not yet emerged from the bridal chamber. The wedding celebration had gone long into the night, so the bride and groom were not really expected to be stirring until afternoon. I am not sure what it was that aroused the suspicion of friends. I don't know why. But after a while they grew concerned. They went to the door of the bridal chamber and began shouting the groom's name. No response. They shouted again. And again. Silence. So the groom's comrades broke down the door, and once inside, they beheld a gruesome sight. The lovely young bride was kneeling at the bedside, weeping bitterly. And the groom lay on the bed, dead. That's right, the groom had died on his own wedding night. Murder? Well, let's take a look at the evidence. The bride was an exceptionally pretty German girl, not the groom's first wife. According to her, she had awakened to discover her husband dead. He had had a great deal to drink the night before. That was all that she knew. Indeed, there were no marks on the groom's body, no wounds that might have led to his death. So obviously the grieving bride was telling the truth. Anyway, she had no motive to kill her husband. But if she did not kill him, what did? Then somebody remembered the nosebleeds. Somebody remembered that the groom had suffered from chronic epistaxis, repeated hemorrhaging of the nasal capillaries and it took only a brief examination to reveal the rest of the story. The groom had fallen into a drunken stupor, then into a deep sleep, so he was flat on his back. When his nose began to bleed, within minutes he had suffocated. He had drowned in his own blood. Case closed. Now I'm aware that history offers some other versions of the incidents you've just relived. History even invents conceivable motives for the bride to have stabbed her groom in the night. Those other versions, however, are based on rumors which arose later. As far as we know, the story you've just heard is the way it was. It would be of no interest to us today, more than 1,500 years later, except for the groom's impact on his own era. For he had a great many enemies, you see, It was not at all unreasonable initially to suspect his young bride, Ildiso, of murder. And yet apparently the groom's demise occurred just as you have heard. Too much booze and a resultant nosebleed. It's an odd end for a man once called the scourge of God. For a man whose name struck terror throughout the entire Western world. For a man who had survived a lifetime of brutal battles to have been done in by his own honeymoon. The reputedly indestructible Attila the Hun had partied himself to death. And now you know the rest of the story. Now, the rest of the story. 
It was a warm afternoon in the early spring of 1931, Chattanooga, Tennessee. 3,000 fans sat in the ballpark bleachers eagerly awaiting the exhibition game between their local team, the Chattanooga Lookouts, and the New York Yankees. For the Yankees, this was the age of the big guns, Gehrig, Ruth. No one really expected the Lookouts to win unless... unless the local team's owner, Joe Engel, could produce a miracle... And there was a shortage of miracles for just about all Yankee opposition in those days. Though just this once, the Chattanooga Lookouts had a secret weapon. A pitcher named Jackie, 17 years young. Now, I should mention that Jackie was not officially a team member of the Lookouts. Was, in fact, still on the roster of a smaller team in Chattanooga, where the young athlete was discovered. But so outstanding was the teenage hurler's record on that other team that an exception was made. So this would be Jackie's big league debut. The manager of the lookouts, <laughs> Raw Meat Rogers, they called him, had it figured this way. He would use the team's star pitcher Clyde Barfoot as their starter. The going got rough, Rogers would take out Barfoot and send Jackie to the mound. Well, the going got rough in the first inning. First two Yankee batters reached base. Next up were Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and Tony Lazare. So lookout pitcher Barfoot was pulled, and just like that, 17-year-old Jackie was in the game. The young Chattanooga fans cheered especially loudly as Jackie walked calmly onto the field. Then at once the ballpark was silent. Jackie's first pitch was cautious, high and inside on purpose. The mighty babe remained poised in his famous stance, ball one. The second pitch was a fast curve, breaking waist high. Babe swung, missed, one and one. The third pitch was a fast ball, shoulder high. Another swing from the great Bambino, and uh, another miss. Strike two. The crowd went wild. Certain that Ruth would look for another high inside pitch, Jackie unleashed a fastball straight down the middle. Babe fell for it. Did not swing. Strike three. Jackie had struck out the Sultan of Swat. Before the joyous din from the stands could diminish, Lou Gehrig was standing at the plate, and Jackie struck him out, too. After walking Tony Lazare, the live young pitcher was retired for the afternoon. Enough excitement for any fledgling superstar. So how come you never knew about Jackie's big league debut, April 2, 1931? Well, at least in part because there was no big league career to follow it up. Now, did the Yankee sluggers really give it their all that day? We've no reason to assume they did not. So the promising young pitcher just arrived at the wrong time. In 1931, there was no room in the majors for someone like Jackie Mitchell. But do you think even today, or ever, some big league team would welcome aboard a 17-year-old uh, girl? That's right, a teenage girl struck out Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth. And now, you know the rest of the story. Now, the rest of the story. Greenland actually was green. 
once upon a time. But that was before it started snowing. Today, today Greenland is little more than a vast snow slab, two miles thick. What land there was is now mostly below sea level, submerged by the sheer weight of all that snow. Three thousand years ago, there was a blizzard on Greenland. The snowfall of subsequent seasons compressed the snow from that one blizzard into a river of ice, a glacier, and it was a September long past when a gigantic chunk of that glacier fractured and tumbled into the Jakobshavn Ice Fjord. Its destination was the open sea. There was about 10,000 such icebergs swarming up in Baffin Bay at the time. Better to understand them all. We'll stay on the trail of this one iceberg in particular and observe it carefully. It was not especially large compared to its brethren, about 100 feet tall, 300 feet long. That which was visible, anyway, for most of it was beneath the water, reaching 500 feet down, very heavy, weighed a million or more tons, and yet the statistics do not do justice to the phenomenal beauty of this floating ice mountain. It was not merely white, but it appeared brilliantly crystalline in the sunlight, refracted through a billion ice-bound air bubbles, scientists retrospectively tracking this particular iceberg. Note that Captain William Adams was in the vicinity. He was homeward bound aboard his whaling ship. Surely, they say, he cast his eyes on that frigid majesty. Before making its way southward, the iceberg would have to embark on a grand tour of Baffin Bay, first northward along the western coast of Greenland, all the way to the mouth of Smith Sound, then south along the eastern coast of Baffin Island, swept relentlessly by the current. The journey took many months, and each mile of the way, the icebergs sang, squealed and creaked and groaned and sang as icebergs do. And it also became a living zoo. Seals nestled in its crevices. Bowhead whales hid themselves in its shadow. Among the scientists who have studied this one individual iceberg is marine biologist Dr. Richard Brown. Dr. Brown even wrote a book about its voyage, and through that iceberg's eyes, the author witnessed the various dramas of that time in that region, the extinction of the bowhead whales, the hardships of the Eskimos, and Dr. Brown follows the beautiful iceberg until as it travels ever southward into warmer waters, it diminishes to the size of a coffee table and disintegrates in a bubble of foam off Bermuda. That was the fate of the snow that fell on Greenland 3,000 years ago. That is the way that beautiful peripatetic palace of ice passed from us. But before it did, it sank the Titanic. It sank the Titanic. Thus did a distant age reach into the 20th century to disturb our destiny. For the history books say that the Titanic was sunk by an iceberg off the coast of Newfoundland, in April of 1912, and that is so. But now you know that she was pre-doomed by a snowstorm ten centuries before the birth of Christ, because now you know the rest of the story. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I look forward to sharing more episodes with you in the future.